Okay, y'all, we're continuing through the judges, and Abimelech has just passed away, and now we are moving on and see who the next judges will be with chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech died, Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, was the next person to rescue Israel. He was from the tribe of Issachar, but lived in the town of Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel for 23 years. When he died, he was buried in Shamir. We don't learn a whole lot about Tola, other than he comes from some very interesting named people. In verse 3, After Tola died, Jair from Gilead judged Israel for 22 years. His 30 sons rode around on 30 donkeys, and they owned 30 towns in the land of Gilead, which are still called the towns of Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Kaman. And here we have the continual downward spiral. We're going to see a continual downward spiral where their years of serving God become less and their years of serving false gods become more, and thus the oppression that comes along with their sin. And they need both deliverance from themselves and from their enemies. In verse 6, again the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the image of Baal and Ashtoreth the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So here we have seven different gods that are mentioned. So now they are serving seven different false gods. And the number seven in the Bible is very significant and symbolic of totality and completion. So they have completely rejected God and turned to the false gods totally in totality. In verse 7, so the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites, who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites east of the Jordan River in the land of the Ammonites, that is, in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed to the west side of the Jordan and attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. The Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, we have sinned against you because we have abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. So they're being oppressed and destroyed. And then they're like, oh, we messed up. And they cry out to God again. And this time God responds in verse 11. The Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites and the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Moanites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods, so I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your honor, in your hour of distress. God's like, you know what? I'm done. You, you have all these gods you're serving. Go ahead and cry out to them and see how they help you. In verse 15, But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord, and he was grieved by their misery. So here we see true repentance. They truly submit themselves, and they're like, we deserve punishment. Do with us as you will. Rescue us. I'm so sorry. And they, we see true repentance in a submissive spirit. In verse 17, at that time, the armies of Ammon had gathered for war and were camped in Gilead, and the people of Israel assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of Galilee said to each other, Whoever attacks the Ammonites first will become ruler over all the people of Gilead. 
so they got rid of all the other gods, all seven of them. They laid them all down. They threw them aside, and they're like, no more. Any god that was put before or alongside God is thrown out, and they officially submit to God so he can in turn save them. And that's what we need to do in our lives today, too. Any gods or false idols in our lives that might take the place of God in our hearts, God wants us to throw it down. He wants to be in our lives fully and 100%. And he wants to rule our lives and bring us to his promised will for our lives, which is, for the record, better than we could ever imagine or do on our own. In chapter 11, verse 1, we'll see who rise up. They called out, whoever attacks them first will become ruler. So who is it going to be? In verse 1, chapter 11, now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. So again, we have a, an odd rescuer that God is rising up. Verse 2, Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You may not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are a son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. So he is thrown out from the family and he gathers up a bunch of rebels who join alongside him and are part of his, his friendship circle. In verse 4, about that time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. So here we have a tough guy warrior who was thrown out, and now they want him back. But God didn't hold his past or his beginning of his life against him. He is rising him up. He, he does rise him up. Our past can be whatever it was, and whatever it was that we lay down when we accept Jesus, it's forgiven, it's forgotten, and it can't be held against you, nor can any future sins that we might fall into be held against us. Jesus has us. He's forgiven us. If we trust our lives and submit to him 100% in every single way, shape, and form, we are cleansed. We Anything we do, have done, or will do in the future, anything we don't even realize we're doing is forgiven. In verse 7, But Jephthah said to them, Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? He's like, what do you want me to do? You threw me out, guys. In verse 8, because we need you, the elders replied, if you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. So here's, he's got, he's presented with an, an offer. And he he's given... He's given an opportunity to become a ruler. And in verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders, Let me get this straight. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. So Jephthah went to with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him their ruler and commander of the army. At Mizpah, in the presence of the Lord, Jephthah repeated what he had said to the elders. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon, asking, Why have you come out to fight against my land? So he has been given the honor of leading the battle. He's a great warrior, and they're like, We trust you. We're going to follow you. And if you notice, he gives everything to the Lord. He gives all credit and glory to God. He's like, If God gives him victory, and in the presence of the Lord, and he is his past isn't held against him by God. He loves God. And forgiveness of our past should affect how we act in our futures. 
and should affect and effectively change our lives. In verse 13, the king of Ammon answered Jephthah's messengers, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they stole my land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River and all the way to the Jordan. Now then, give back the land peaceably. So that's their claim. That's why they're fighting, because they think their land was stolen. So we'll see Jephthah's response in verse 14. Jephthah sent this message back to the Ammonite king. This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not steal any land from Moab or Ammon. When the people of Israel arrived at Kadesh on their journey from Egypt after crossing the Red Sea, they sent messengers to the king of Edom asking for permission to pass through his land. But their request was denied. Then they asked the king of Moab for similar permission, but he wouldn't let them pass through either. So the people of Israel stayed in Kadesh. Finally, they went around Edom and Moab through the wilderness. They traveled along Moab's eastern borders and camped on the other side of the Arnon River. But they crossed, they never crossed once to the Arnon River into the Moab, where the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Sihon of the Amorites, who ruled from Heshbon, asking for permission to cross through his land to get to their destination. But King Sihon didn't trust Israel to pass through his land. Instead, he mobilized his army at Jahaz and attacked them. But the Lord, the God of Israel, gave his people victory over King Sihon. So Israel took control of all the land of the Amorites who lived in that region, from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River, and from the eastern wilderness to the Jordan. So you see, it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who took away the land from the Amorites and gave it to Israel. Why then should we give it back to you? You keep whatever your God, Kamash, gives you, and we'll keep whatever the Lord our God gives us. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he try to make a case against Israel for disputing the land? Did he go to war with them? Israel has been living here for 300 years, inhabiting Heshbon and its surrounding settlements, all the way to Oror and its settlements, and in all the towns along the Arnon River. Why have you made no effort to recover it before now? Therefore, I have not sinned against you. Rather, you have wronged me by attacking me. Let the Lord, who is judge, decide today which of us is right, Israel or Ammon. But the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message. So he's like, all glory again goes to God for the victory. God can and will use anyone. And he tends to use the people who are least likely because then all glory goes to God. And if God, we can cry out and say, like, if God can save me, there's literally hope for everyone because look what he's done to me. And he gives the credit to the proper place. He gives credit and glory all to God. But he's going to make a, a bit of a mistake here. He's not perfect. He is called and God is using him, but he is a human and he is not perfect. He does what he's supposed to do, but eventually, as you see coming up here, he's going to make a very stupid and rash vow to kill his daughter because he's loyal. And he ends up murdering his own daughter and starts ends up starting the first of the civil war, wars through the upcoming chapters that we're going to see. Again, we see this downward spiral. So we'll just go ahead and read about that in verse 29. At that time, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. So he is being victorious. God is moving, and God is giving them victory. And then in verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So he promises to 
sacrifice whatever the first thing is that comes out of his house to God. And he, I think in his mind, he's thinking it's probably going to be like one of his servants or hopefully an animal so he can give a sacrifice to God. But it's a rash vow. God never asked for this vow. He didn't want this vow. God was already giving them the victory in, in working through his life. In verse 32, so Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aurora to an area near Minnith and as far away as Abel Karamin. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot take back. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. So it has become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. So this mirrors the pagan culture that they're living in. He ends up giving his child as a sacrifice in Deuteronomy 18.10 very clearly states that God is very much against that. He actually says that you are not allowed to do that. He, It's a command and he, in this rash vow, he, he goes against the very command of God. And God never asked for this vow. And God would have likely said no if he would have asked God. He would have said no to this because it's against his very command in Deuteronomy. And he would have forgiven him for this rash vow. And he instead doesn't seek God at all. He just goes through with this. And the, his culture did this and he went along with it. And he thought he made this vow so he had to keep it rather than asking God for forgiveness. And God didn't want this vow. God didn't ask for it. It's against everything that God stands for. He didn't believe or he didn't stand on his faith. And he didn't understand God's grace or believe in God's grace and that his actions can't save him or have a good, a good standing with God. But instead, he tries to follow through on this vow. Well, he does follow through on this vow that is against the very nature of God. And no matter what we do in life, our faith far outweighs our failures. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. We might fall into sin. And God chooses sinners. God redeems sinners. Anything in our past, in our story, God redeems a hundred times over and uses that to help his kingdom and serve his kingdom. And it it's another cry out of showing that these judges were human. They failed. They were imperfect. And the people of God need a better judge, a real savior. And we know today in this day and time that we get that. We get Jesus. And God gave us the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, the ultimate redeemer. And he is who we can put our faith in. He is who we can believe in. And we can trust his grace, his mercy, his compassion, and of course his forgiveness. We'll continue on in Judges tomorrow. I hope you all are having a great day.